Hello, this is Jesse Weiler from Adoramus Bulletin. Today I sat down with Dr. Mike Brummond, who is an assistant professor of systematic studies and director of the MA program at Sacred Heart Seminary and School of Theology in Hales Corners, Wisconsin. He wrote an article for us recently entitled Triangulating Sanctity, How the Word of God in the Domestic Church Renews the Liturgy. I sat down with Dr. Brummond to discuss this topic further in an Adoramus interview. Okay, I am here with Dr. Brumman. Dr. Brumman, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me, Jesse. You recently wrote this article for Adoramus Bulletin, Triangulating Sanctity, How the Word of God in the Domestic Church Renews the Liturgy. That is a mouthful of a title, but it is every bit as you described it. So mm. uh, first of all, just dive into that that title for this article. What What are you thinking here? Sure. It, it pulls together a few items, right? So this originated, this idea uh, originated as a paper for the annual meeting for the Society for Catholic Liturgy. And the topic for that year was the liturgy and the family. And so one of the things that I was kind of pondering was my own family. What does my family do to uh, prepare for the liturgy, uh, to engage more deeply in the liturgy? I have two small children, so that's a challenge in and of itself. And then that quickly developed into what more could we be doing when it comes to preparing for and entering into the liturgy? So I was kind of exploring those two themes. And as I was reading and rereading uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Second Vatican Council's documents on the liturgy, one of the articles, one of the uh, paragraphs that jumped out at me was on sacred scripture and the uh, importance of a love for sacred scripture in the ongoing promotion and restoration of the liturgy. And those three things kind of started circling in my mind, the liturgy, the family, and sacred scripture. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, you, you quote here that um, sacred scripture is of the greatest importance in the celebration of the liturgy. I don't think people realize how big an emphasis Sacrosanctum Concilium places on scripture. And that brings us into the kind of the lens that you use to start the conversation on this is the fact that a lot of people have limited access to the liturgy. And if scripture is of the greatest concern, then we shouldn't have a problem tuning into our, our local mass on live television or at least breaking out scriptures domestically, which probably we should be doing outside of the liturgy anyway. Can you speak to that a little bit? Right. Uh, and so th I suppose this is one of my main points in, in the article is that really to have a profound access to the liturgy, it almost presumes that we have been doing that, that we've been engaging the scriptures all of our lives, that we are uh, informed by it, that our imaginations are attuned to it, that we recognize the signs and symbols that are, are um, just part of the, 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 uh, the biblical idiom, right? And so uh, on the one hand, we get that in the liturgy, the, the liturgy feeds us with scripture, certainly through the liturgy of the word, through the biblical readings. But what we may not notice is that uh, the liturgy pours out to us uh, biblical images and, and words and allusions throughout its hymns, its prayers. The collect often is very imbued with scripture uh, and, and the prefaces, all these other parts of the liturgy are really setting forth the scriptures for the faithful. But then it goes the other way that certainly the liturgy is 
showing forth the scriptures to us. But it seems to me, and this is, again, the point of the article, that in order then to more fully enter into the liturgy, I have to study, dive into, kind of really become familiar with the scriptures outside of the liturgy. So there's kind of this virtuous circle where familiarity with the scriptures breeds familiarity with the liturgy and vice versa. And so that takes the form of, of uh, scriptural study, uh, of uh, devout reading in Lexio Divina. And as I point out in my article, it, this all starts in the family. I, I love that you brought the collects and even the antiphons into this too, because those are some things we don't, well, we always hear the collect, but we don't always hear the antiphons. And even if you just go to Mass every Sunday, there's a good chance you're hearing the majority of Scripture anyway. And so I've been hearing these same things since I was attending Mass when I was in first grade or third grade. Um, but it really does take that extra effort to really familiarize ourselves with it. And and also, I think it's uh, we have to mention that those collects, those antiphons, they really bring together the individual liturgical theme of that particular liturgy. And those things are really key because they tune into the scripture readings uh, of that particular mass. So uh, the next thing I want to dive into are these three things that you break down uh, and then you use the hermeneutic of, of scripture to talk about. You talk about the doxological characters, the cosmological characters, and the eschatological characters. So these are the principles that Monsignor Mannion was talking about that you're using. Can you break those down for us uh, real quickly? Sure. And so this is based on on two articles um, that I came across years ago in my own studies and I use with my students. Monsignor Mannion proposed this idea of re-Catholicizing the liturgy. Um, and I always, when I, with my students, I have to say, well, he didn't mean that the liturgy isn't Catholic. That's not what he was talking about. But it's an entering, a, a renewed entering into the liturgy in its original ethos of beauty and spiritual grandeur, this kind of thing. And then he pointed out three kind of main avenues for doing that for this entering more deeply into the liturgy, three aspects. And then he expanded on this in another article where he dove into these three elements specifically. And so the first is eschatological. So a renewed emphasis on the eschatological nature of the liturgy, that the liturgy is more than just my community here and now in this time and place, but the liturgy is something pulling us forward into eternity into Christ standing in glory at the right hand of the Father. Uh, it brings us out of the mundane, out of the fallen world and points us to our final end and how we already participate in hope and in faith in that uh, eschatological reality. The second is the cosmological. It's it's similar in that, again, it's pulling us out of the, the quotidian, the everyday, the, the, what we uh, see around us all the time. And it points us to, again, the liturgy is participated in, in a large way than me, my family, even this local community. In fact, the liturgy is larger than even the church on earth. That uh, in the, this cosmological sense, the liturgy involves all of creation, all of the cre visible creation around us, but also the worship of the angels and saints in heaven. So very related to the eschatological, we have this notion of participating in the heavenly liturgy. So both of these, the eschatological, the cosmological, uh, dimensions of liturgy pull us uh, or, or uh, impel us beyond the here and now into something larger, something grander. And the idea then is that if we focus on those two, that will also naturally flow forth into the doxological, that this grandeur uh, of the liturgy, this splendor of the liturgy will impel us towards 
praise, uh, a greater focus, not on the individual subjectivity, my needs, but on uh, kind of a, 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 a theocentric liturgy in which we're there for the praise of God. So Monsignor Mannion in his article suggests that in the post-conciliar period, these are things that suffered, these three aspects of the liturgy that need to be recaptured. He hints in his articles at the biblical foundations of these, and I try to bring them forward in my article a little more explicitly, that one main way to emphasize these things is to recapture a biblical imagination uh, with the book of Revelation, with heavenly worship, with some of Paul's later letters like Colossians. You have this cosmological dimension just kind of laid out for us. And then the, the scriptures often, again, in the works of Paul and the Psalms, have this kind of doxological ethos to them, right? And so if we're imbued with this uh, scriptural imagination, uh, this if we live these scriptural idioms in our everyday life, these three elements will be uh, we'll expect them in the liturgy, we'll welcome them in the liturgy, and we'll recognize them in the liturgy, and we'll we'll understand what liturgy ought to be in that sense. So what a, what a gift to be able to be given those characters so that we can actually perceive this. And, and you go on to talk about how we can, quote unquote, see scripturally. What, how are we supposed to see scripturally and take that from our liturgies into the domestic church? Yeah, so... I think it's interesting that our our imaginations right play a large role in this. We we start to naturally think according the, to the the things we feed our imagination with. So uh, I'm a big fan of The Office, and after enough watching of The Office, right, uh, you start to speak in lines from The Office, and we do this with songs, we do this with our favorite books, uh, anything we repeatedly put into our minds and especially our imaginations, we start to think along those lines. And so uh, I'm aware now of a, as a father of a five-year-old that everything that I put in front of my child as a, as a form of media, particularly media, is forming his imagination and is forming the way he thinks. It's forming the categories uh, by which he thinks, his vocabulary. And so I'll hear things from the TV shows that he watches coming back out, from the books we read. And so I'm provided then as a father and in the family uh, with an opportunity to feed that imagination with those things from media or and or with the scriptural imagery. Right. And so it's a matter of putting forward for the family. I'm thinking particularly for my children uh, in those formative years where that imagination is being formed, putting forth uh, the scriptural stories. Right. And not just putting forth the stories. Right. Uh, because the stories, uh, as interesting as they can be, can remain, I think, for many people. And this was my experience coming into adulthood. They can remain isolated and disconnected and uh, very difficult to see the, the big picture, the narrative, how it all fits together. Uh, and so one of the challenges, I think, in the family and presenting this for children is presenting not just Bible stories, but the story of salvation, how it fits together, that narrative, and then showing forth some of the connections as you go about once they remember something from the old, pointing out how it's fulfilled in the new. I think kids, very young kids, can pick up on that things, uh, those things and even make those connections. You know, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. And we start to become what we consume, mm -hmm. not unlike 
consuming our sacrifice on the altar, consuming Christ. And so we want to make sure that we're being fed in the proper way. So I completely agree. Uh, you mentioned this other part in this article about intelligently worshiping. You know, we've heard that before. We've heard that from Virgil Michael, from a couple of other figures in the liturgical movement. How do, How is this intelligently worshiping? Right. So the both of the words we've already mentioned the words and the prayers but also the signs and symbols and gestures we use in the liturgy there are various sources for these signs and symbols and gestures but one of the main ones one of the main sources is the bible are the scriptures right and so if i'm to intelligently worship to understand these signs and symbols uh, on the one hand they could be explained to me and this is the, the the danger of a didacticism, right? Where uh, the the priest or deacon at the baptism has to now explain to us in plain words the meaning of the lit candle. Well, that's one way to enter into intelligent worship. It seems to me that's not the intention of the rites. The intention of the rites is that the signs and symbols and gestures speak for themselves. There's something natural, for instance, about a lighted candle, a, a light, right, that we understand by nature. But now if I think of all of those biblical uh images and stories about light, about the pillar of light uh, leading the Israelites out of slavery. If I think of, of uh, Christ speaking of himself as the light of the world, uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount where he says that now we're the light and the salt. Uh, when we think of, of the language of, of Paul, that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the, the kingdom of his marvelous light, all of those things, if I have those as part of my imagination, as part of, it's just co-natural to me, that symbol is going to have meaning without someone having to stand there and explain it. And I think that goes for any number of gestures and, and signs and symbols in the liturgy. As somebody who also has little children, how are we teaching, or I guess, how would you recommend we can actually do this in a practical way? So, you know, you're on your way to church with your children. How mm -hmm. can you show them how to intelligently worship or how to see biblically, uh, like on your way to mass? Yeah. So this is a challenge. I absolutely a challenge. I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old. Like I said, part of the paper was a self-examination. You know, I laugh as I'm asked that question because we try and we, and, and, all the parents who are listening will know this if they've tried to read Bible stories. The Bible stories are not super child friendly. So it's, chall it's challenging. You read the flood story and there's people dying. You re read the Exodus and there's people dying. And uh, David and Bathsheba, we're just skipping that one for now, right? So it's a challenge. On the other hand, there are good resources out there. Uh, my wife and I uh, have found a good ch uh, children's Bible, right, that teaches at uh, uh, you know an appropriate level that does have uh, more of a narrative flow to it. So finding the right resources while challenging is important. You mentioned in particular, I think you said something like on the way to mass or in preparation for mass. And so that is actually one thing my wife and I tried to do with our older child is to read the, the read the gospel on the drive to mass. And I'm sure some families do this differently, you know, the night before anything like this. But so that when we're at mass, that's not the first time he's hearing it. I find this is helpful for me. Forget the kids. When I'm holding a kid, I sometimes don't hear the gospel, right? So to have it read uh, in the car before, simply that, right, is a, is a help to, to uh, so that when I'm at the liturgy, it's not the first time that week that I've heard that reading. And we'll play a game with, uh, with our five-year-old, right? We'll ask something like, listen for which gospel it's from. 
something simple like that. His name is Lucas, so he loves it when it's from the Gospel of Luke. Or listen for one thing, or we'll tell him what to listen for, just to kind of tune his uh, limited attention into that, or to ask questions on the drive home afterwards. One thing I like to do myself, I think the typological reading that the that the uh, church gives us between the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, sometimes I'll play a game with myself and ask the question, why did the church put this Old Testament reading with this gospel? What's the what's the thematic connection? Sometimes it's incredibly apparent, right? The the New Testament quotes the Old. Sometimes it's rather difficult and, and, and it sparks a discussion with my wife. I'm looking forward to the day, it's probably coming soon, when I can start asking those questions of, of my son of make the connection. I absolutely agree. And actually, you know, there's a really good podcast out there called The Lanky Guys, and it's a biblical scholar, Dr. Scott Powell, and a a priest, Father Peter Musset. And every Thursday they release a podcast, and they do that. They they thread all of the scriptures together, and they kind of weave everything together. And I know a lot of priests who listen to that so that they can have homily prep for their upcoming Mass. So the last thing I want to discuss here is that we have this formula. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that the two uh, ends of the Mass are the glorification of God and the sanctification of mankind, right? So we go to the Mass, we participate actively, we uh, intelligently worship, we sacrifice all, ourselves on the altar, we consume our own perfection, thus beginning the process of deification, and then we go. We were commissioned. How is that process mirrored in the domestic church? Ah, uh, so this is this is uh, this is always fun when a, a question is asked that I haven't thought of, right? I mean, so it's a fantastic question, you know. Uh, so we, how do we move from the liturgy uh, in the family, right? If if we're truly being transfigured, right? If we're truly being uh, glorifying God, if we're um, if we're being sanctified, it should be reflected in the family. I think, uh, I think one of the, uh, you know, it's difficult for a five-year-old or a two-year-old. I think one of the main things is for the parents to model that. Uh, it means that it places an extra responsibility on my wife and I to show our children, right, in demonstrable ways that the liturgy makes a difference in in our our lived experience as a family, right? That it's not uh, something that's relegated to Sundays or even to daily masses, but that it's something that flows forth in in all that we do. And and maybe, again, as I think about this, as you ask the question, maybe that's uh, something I have to think about is, is how, how is that explicitly uh, lived out in in our family, it's, yeah, it's, it's something worth thinking about. That's that's one of the benefits of writing these articles, right? And thinking about these things, and, and maybe it's a uh, an occupational hazard of the theologian is that we have to live up to what we write about. Every um, every spring at the seminary, I teach a course on marriage and the family, and my wife every spring asks me, "Well, is it making you a better husband and father?" And that's that's both a, a challenge and an indictment, and it's uh, you know it propels me to to do exactly that to be a better husband and better father. As somebody with young children myself, I'm looking to the future to figure out, you know, when we can start shifting gears a little, because that's the part that I'm really excited about. So, well, Dr. Brumman, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for this beautiful article that you wrote. We hope to have you back on the show again. I'd love to do it. Thanks for having me, Jesse. God bless.